salt of the earth you are the light of the world you know sometimes when i'm reading through this sermon i like to imagine what it would have been like if i'd been sitting there on the grass on that mountainside as jesus turns to the crowd and starts to preach this sermon and i imagine him turning to one group perhaps looking at you or someone sitting next to you and he catches your eye and face to face he says you are the salt of the earth and then he looks over here and, and he catches someone else's eye and face to face he says to them, you are the light of the world. And I just wonder how those words would have hit us, how we would have felt the, the gravity and weight of those words back then. I, I, I want us to feel the weight of Jesus' words today. And I think in some ways these words are quite easy to understand. It's a fairly straightforward metaphor, isn't it? salt and light light and salt light is something that we need to be able to see in the darkness to be able to find our way and without it we trip over ourselves we stumble we get lost uh, so to be light in the world perhaps this means that we're supposed to be the sort of people who lead inspirational lives uh, lives that other people can aspire to that we set a shining example uh, that we lead uh, lives that are like shining lights that guide the way you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Perhaps salt, the first thing that comes to mind, is uh, something that we, salt is something we use to, to flavor our food with. So perhaps this is about bringing flavor to life. So perhaps it's, it's bring light into the darkness and bring flavor to an otherwise sometimes bland and flavorless world. And so I think these uh, are the sort of broader meanings of these metaphors of salt and light that Jesus is using. And I think there's something quite powerful, isn't there, about seeing this as a sort of broad, universal ethic, because then it, it's sort of relevant to, to everybody in exactly the same way and, and, and equally. So it doesn't matter if you're a New Yorker in 2022 or you're sitting on the hillside on the grass in the first century, 2,000 years ago, hearing Jesus say these words for the very first time, it's equally relevant to everyone in the same way. But then again, on the other hand, and there's always an on the other hand, isn't there? On the other hand, I think Jesus had something more specific in mind. I'm not sure that this is such a broad appeal as much as it is a particular target. Uh, I'm not sure that this is supposed to be about a, a broad aspiration for people in general as much as it is a very particular vocation for a specific people. 
And what I want to show this morning is that by coming to terms with these more particular, specific meanings, that the narrower meaning that these metaphors of salt and light had for Jesus, Jesus' words won't become more distant or, or less relevant to our lives, but actually his words will reach across 2,000 years and hit us more poignantly and more powerfully than ever before. So is that clear what I'm saying? I'm saying that there is this general, uh, broader understanding of, of salt and light and how these metaphors work. And these metaphors certainly carry that kind of meaning. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But several layers deep, there is this more particular, specific meaning that Jesus had in mind. And that's the meaning that I want to get grapple with this morning. So we'll start with salt, and then we'll move on to the metaphor of light, then we'll bring salt and light together, and we'll see where that leaves us. So salt, as we've said, has a, a lot of uses in our uh, own culture. We, we mentioned earlier that we use it to flavor food. Um, we use it to... Uh, grit the roads, you know, stop cars sliding on the roads and people slipping on the sidewalks. We've just done that last week. Salt all over the place. Uh, I've recently found out that you can use salt as a sort of a, a raising agent. I've been going on this sort of kick of baking cakes and and uh, you, you enjoyed that, didn't, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, and uh, we also uh, use salt to preserve things. It's a preservative. So these are all the many uses of salt and, and the very positive associations that we have with it. But in the Middle East, salt had a very sp another very special and unique use. You know, I've said before that even today in certain very remote Arab villages and, and amongst some Bedouin tribes, uh, what you'll find is that when there's been a feud, but they want to mark the end of the feud, they want to say this is the end of this conflict, we're, we're bringing a resolution to it, we're now going to create a new alliance, we're going to reconcile, what they will do is they will share a meal together. We've talked to, to before about how eating a meal, sharing a, a meal from the same table, is a very powerful symbol in the Middle East of reconciliation and restoration of relationship. This is why when you're reading through the New Testament, every other page, you'll find that Jesus is, is having a meal. He's eating with someone else. What I haven't pointed out, though, is that the, the contents of this meal and what they would eat is bread and salt. And salt was a very important part of this meal because it had this sense of creating an obligation between two people or two groups of people. And this sense of moral obligation between each other uh, comes out in f interesting Arab phrases like this. There are bread and salt between us. Or there is salt between them. Of course, as Westerners, we would look at that and go, okay, there's salt between us, is there? Okay. But of course, now we know what that, that means, right? It means that these people are bound together by a promise. Uh, they are committed to each other. They are in an alliance with each other. They're morally obligated to one another. They're in a covenant with each other. So salt is about bringing people together, symbolizing a new alliance. Well, that's in the Arab world, but in Israel, in the ancient Old Testament world, it means exactly the same thing. Uh, I'm going to put a few examples up here on, on the screen. So this is from Numbers. 
Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and daughters as your perpetual share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. Covenant of salt. This is from Chronicles. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Again, this idea of covenant, commitment, promise is symbolized by salt. And this is from Ezra. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonoured, we are sending this message to inform the king. They may say, wait, Stephen, that, that, one, that last example doesn't actually mention salt at all. And you're right. And the reason why it doesn't mention salt is because it's a good translation. And what a good translation will try to do is to convey the, the, the meaning or the general sense of the original text. But if you wanted a more literal translation, uh, then it would actually read more like this. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send this message and inform the king because we eat the salt. But of course, you know, as again, as Westerners, we would have read that and not understood it. So they translated as uh, because we are under obligation. So this is about binding people together. Okay, that's salt. Then we can think about the metaphor of light. And you guessed it, it's also associated in the Old Testament, in Jewish thinking, with covenant and commitment and promise. Um, you know, if we were to read the entire book of Matthew, I know we're not, we're just reading Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. But if you were to read the entire book of Matthew, and if you want to, don't let me stop you, we would notice that all the way through, Matthew is evoking the prophet Isaiah. Uh, in fact, he does it even in the first four chapters before the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's evoked and quoted Isaiah or, or referenced him or hinted at him in numerous different ways. And this is Matthew's way of priming the pump. He's preparing the reader for what's going to come. So the idea is by the time we get to Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus says something like, you are the light of the world, uh, because of all these references to Isaiah, we're meant to go, oh, I get it. I know what you mean. I understand how you're using that metaphor of light. So let's just take a look at how uh, Matthew has been priming the pump by quoting Isaiah. Uh, and even in, in Matthew chapter 4, this is what it says. It says that when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And so there's this long Isaiahic quote. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Again from Isaiah, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Again, light is to do with covenant, commitment, and promise. 
I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And again, uh, in Isaiah 60, the entire chapter is built on this metaphor of light. So, so let's bring salt and light together. What we find is that this is about covenant, commitment, and promise. It's about a God who has committed himself and promised himself to us. Can you imagine that? The, the free and boundless God binding himself to us with a promise. I've asked this before, and I'll, and I'll ask it again. Do you know what a rare thing a promise is in, in our cultural context? Do you know what a rarity, a scarcity, what a precious and unique thing a promise is in our day and age? Let, let me explain again why, why that's the case. One of our highest cultural values is freedom. Absolute, unfettered freedom. Nothing and no one must ever get in the way of my freedom. Our greatest ethical concern is not so much you know, what you choose, but the fact that you have the freedom to choose is what really matters and what counts. And so our freedom is the highest good that our culture and society has to offer us. And that is a very powerful story. And, and so actually to, to make a promise, to, to, to make a commitment to enter into a covenant, that these things sort of fly in the face of our greatest cultural value because to, to make a promise is to bind myself to someone else and is, in a sense, to commit the greatest cultural sin. And so we're fast becoming the people who can't make promises. You know, you think, you think to, of a culture that swipes left and swipes right, that's a promise-making culture. You, you think everyone hooking up, people who prefer to hook up instead of uh, making public vows in the context of a wider community to which we are already thoroughly committed, do, do you think that's a commitment-making, covenant-making culture? Of course not. And look, I include myself here. I mean, you know, piously, it would be nice to be able to say, oh, I'm your pastor and I don't struggle with making commitments and promises. I'm just fine with that. But look, the culture's got a grip on me just as much as it does on you. So I find myself also profoundly committed to my absolute freedom. Uh, I also want to keep my options open. But, but I want us to understand what's at stake here. I want us to understand what the trade-off is, because there is a trade-off. You know, if, if we can't make promises, if we're not a culture which is going to emphasize making promises, entering into commitments and covenants with each other, if we can't make promises, then we can't talk about faithfulness and steadfast and loyalty. And what happens is faithfulness gives way to convenience. And when faithfulness gives way to convenience, well then we have to get rid of trust. Because I can't trust you if I know that this is just out of convenience. I mean, I'm convenient to you today, but what about tomorrow? What about the day after tomorrow? Am I convenient to you then? What about the week after, the next week? Am I convenient to you then? So faithfulness gives way to convenience and with that out goes trust. And without trust, we can't talk sensibly about long-term, enduring relationships and lasting friendships. A promise calls for faithfulness. Faithfulness creates trust. 
and together promise faithfulness, trust. They form the rich soil out of which all the best things in life grow. Let me make this a bit more personal. Let me just talk about this personally. Promise, faithfulness, trust. This forms a rich soil out of which all the best things in my own life have grown. For, for example, I've been married for 23 years. Actually, I've been married to Julia for 24 years this July, July 11th this year, 24 years. It, I don't know where all the time has gone. It blows my mind. I don't understand it. But it has been magical. It has. It's been magical. But it's not just my relationship with Julia. It's every meaningful friendship I've ever had. It's every significant community that I've had the honour to belong to. It's every meaningful endeavour I've ever had the privilege of putting my hand to and, and being a part of. It all grows out of this promise and faithfulness and trust where all the good stuff comes from. And I can't even begin to tell you how impoverished my life would be if I'd set all of that aside. And, and it's a lot, right? It's a lot to set aside. Again, I want us to understand what the trade-off is here. I, I want to understand what our culture is asking us to give up. This is, this, we're being asked to give this up. I can't tell you how impoverished my life would be if I just set all of that aside in favour of my unfettered, uninterrupted personal freedom. You can make that trade-off, of course. I mean, and you know why you can do that? Because you're free. You're a free agent and no one's going to stop you. I believe in freedom too. It's just not my highest value. So you can make that trade-off, but let me put it this way. It is a con. I, I, would, I would literally have to tear out, rip out all the best stuff out of my life. But this is the bind our culture puts us in. Our culture says absolute freedom is what counts. But deep inside, all I want is everything a promise makes possible. Faithfulness, royalty, trust and friendship, love, enduring worth, enduring value. So Jesus comes along and he's talking about salt and he's talking about light. And as he does that, he's evoking the promise-making God, the God who breaks our cultural taboo, the God who commits our greatest cultural sin. But here is the really insidious part of Jesus' words, if you're listening through our culture's ears. Here's the insidious part of Jesus' words. Jesus invites us to join with God in breaking this cultural taboo. He invites us to participate in this cultural transgression because Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now do you hear what Jesus is saying? Let me translate it. You are to embody the promise of God. You are to embody God's commitment to the world. You are the embodiment of God's covenant with his creation. Feel the weight of that? You are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt losing its saltiness, trampled underfoot. I've often found this a very confusing saying. I was never quite sure what was meant here. But we put it in the context of this covenant, and suddenly it all makes sense. It's an interesting word picture. Jesus is asking us to imagine, you know, what use is it if our lives, instead of affirming the covenant, actually appear to cancel and negate and abandon the covenant and commitment and promise of God to the world. Salt losing its saltiness is all about us abandoning the covenant. You can do that, Jesus says. Of course you can. You can abandon the covenant, but do that and we've got nothing. It's like salt being thrown out into the street to be trampled on. Abandon the covenant and we've got nothing. Can we and dare we become a people who are capable of making promises and being marked out in this world by everything that grows out of that soil? All the good stuff, faithfulness, loyalty, trust, enduring and lasting friendship. Look, it's, it's true that once we make a decision of any consequence, in other words, when you make a promise, it automatically rules out a whole series of other choices. And that's the scary part for people like you and, and, and people like me, right, in our cultural context. That's the scary part. I don't want to shut down all these different choices and options. But the flip side of it is, is that it is literally impossible to live a life of any consequence. Right? All the good stuff I've been talking about. It is literally impossible to live a life of any consequence and at the same time keep your options open. I'm going to put this up on the screen because I read this a couple of, over a couple of decades ago and it has, it's been so influential in, in the, the decisions I've made in life. Once we make a decision of any consequence, it automatically rules out a whole series of other choices. It is literally impossible to live a life of any consequence and at the same time keep your options open. Put another way, every yes is a million no's. Every yes is a million no's, but it is a yes. And that yes might be very significant. And that yes could be very significant for someone here today. Because there are people in your life right now who need to know that there is someone they can trust. There are people in this congregation this morning who more than anything else need an expression of loyalty and fidelity. You know how I know this? Because I talk to all of you. There are friends who need to see that when everyone else has deserted them, you will still be there. I know this because I talk to all of you. There are people you know who have been betrayed and profoundly, deeply wounded by that betrayal. And they need to see what faithfulness looks like. And they need to realize, perhaps for the first time, that what you offer is an enduring friendship. 
You won't be abandoning them at any point. So who is that friend? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a member of your own family. A member of our congregation who is desperate. Desperate to experience these things. Well, maybe only a person who understands God's promise can become, over time, God's promise to them. Thank you.